We are actually finishing our series in the book of Acts for the summer, and then next week, we're going to jump back into the Thread Sermon series. We'll pick it up in Philippians, and then we'll be there uh, one book each week uh, till Revelation, which is around Thanksgiving, and we'll finish the whole Bible then. So uh, one sermon, each book of the Bible, connecting it all to Jesus should be a blast. If you haven't been with us, I'd invite you to join. Uh, We're going to be learning a lot about... uh, the, the churches that we've just heard the stories of how they started. So Paul will send a bunch of letters back, and that's kind of my infomercial to come back and check those out. So let's pray and ask God to lead and guide us as we uh, look at the church of Ephesus. God, thank you for this morning. I just confess that I need you in a special way uh, this morning to speak through me or in spite of me, but to speak. Um, God, you are good. And I just trust that your spirit has words for every single person listening here right now. So I pray that I'd get out of the way so that he can speak. In Jesus' name I ask, amen. Um, I've actually been looking forward to this particular message since we started this little mini-series in Acts because in many ways what God does in the city of Ephesus, I've prayed almost every day that God would do in Duluth and Superior since I moved here. Uh, the, the work, even just a fraction of the work that God accomplished through this church, if he did it today, I'd be amazed. And it's been, in many ways, the dream of my heart. So in light of that, that's, we're going to cover the whole story of the gospel coming to Ephesus. It's a lot of verses, meaning there's going to be a lot of things that we can't do a deep dive into. Um, but that's okay. That means that you get to study your Bible at home. That means if not all of the questions that you have are answered, that means that you can do a little bit of Bible study on your own, and I just want to see the whole of what God is doing here. So I'm going to show, share with you six characteristics of the church here, then we'll read through the story, and then we'll just kind of go back and look at them. Sound good? All right. So first, the six characteristics of the healthy ministry that takes place in the city of Ephesus. The believers there are marked with humility and teachability. They're marked by that. Second, the Holy Spirit's power is demonstrated clearly through healing and through deliverance. Third, new believers are prevalent. They're everywhere. People are meeting Jesus. Fourth, there is a willingness to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Fifth, the gospel of Jesus actually begins to impact the economy. And sixth, the the work of the church multiplies out regionally. So I'm going to read through it, see if you can see those characteristics as we go through the story. Chapter 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. So when Priscilla and Aquila go with the Apostle Paul to the city of Ephesus after leaving Corinth. 
a city that they started a church in. Uh, they stay behind in Ephesus while Paul travels and goes back to the city of Antioch, their sending church, to kind of give a report. And if you remember from last week, when Paul was in the synagogue there, they said, hey, we want you to stay longer. We want to hear more from you. And Paul says, if the Lord wills, I'll come back to Ephesus and I'll do ministry there. Well, the Lord willed in the passage here, but Apollos... Uh, is there, and Priscilla and Aquila are left behind. They stay in Ephesus, and they hear Apollos preaching and teaching, but, but realizing that the message that he's sharing is incomplete. He's missing some key details, and so they pull him aside privately because correction often happens way better privately than it does publicly, and they kind of close the gaps in his knowledge, and then upon continuing to preach and speak, he says, you know, I want to go to Achaia, which was actually Corinth, where Priscilla and Aquila had just started a church. And so they actually write a letter kind of commending him as a pastor, so to speak, to strengthen and encourage the church in Corinth. And so it's almost like a little switcheroo happening. Priscilla and Aquila go from Corinth to Ephesus. Uh, Apollos goes from Ephesus to Corinth, and they continue to build up and minister to the churches there. So the story continues, verse 1. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So he came back, the Lord, and they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. I think this story gives a little insight into what perhaps Priscilla and Aquila talked with Apollos about. They were disciples of John the Baptist, these people here, and they knew about Jesus, and their understanding about Jesus, even though it was true, it was incomplete. Now, it's hard for us in a world that's filled with the internet, with Zoom calls, with cell phones, with a functioning postal service, to think that the news in two decades hadn't traveled from Jerusalem all the way to Ephesus, but it hadn't. There were still some gaps. These were disciples of John the Baptist who knew that he had come as a proclaimer of one who was to come, the Messiah, and they had connected the dots that Jesus was the Messiah, but they didn't have a complete understanding of the gospel, and namely, they were missing an understanding of the Holy Spirit, which is a pretty big deal. It's the one that Jesus said, it's actually better that I leave so that he comes and he will empower you and fill you so that you can do the work that I've called you to do. And so they didn't have any knowledge of the Holy Spirit. There were gaps in their understanding. And so when Paul comes, he teaches them and they actually are baptized then into Jesus and they manifest the presence of the Spirit by speaking in tongues. So many questions, right? How could there be disciples of John for this long? Now, this is one of those things where we can't do a deep dive into this. Uh, there's probably a lot of you that are like, how can there be disciples without the Spirit? Are, are tongues a necessary manifestation of the Holy Spirit's presence? Why does this happen here? Those are great questions, and I would invite you to do a little Bible study on your own. I would say, no, that tongues are not necessarily the only manifestation of the Spirit. He manifests himself in a lot of different ways. But here, it's almost like a third category of people that that was the sign that the Spirit had arrived. Remember, that happened when the, on, on Acts, in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit was poured out, tongues were made manifest. That happened when the Gentiles believed the gospel with Cornelius the centurion and, and they began speaking in tongues. And now here, there are people who have been followers of John that are speaking in tongues. Many Bible scholars see it as a very similar parallel that happened in in the same way. I could go into more on that, but then we'd lose the whole story. So let's keep going. 
And he, Paul, entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now that's an astounding last statement, isn't it? This continued for two more years, so he's there for at least two years and three months, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now remember, this is his typical pattern. He would go and he would go to the synagogue because he would start with the low-hanging fruit. And he would reason with the Jewish people who are waiting for the Messiah in the synagogue, reasoning from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus was the one that was promised. That he is the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And he would do that until there was opposition and he got kicked out. Because not everybody believed. And then he would turn his attention to the Gentiles. But what's different here, and very similar to what happened in Corinth, is he actually begins to stay a lot longer in these cities, kind of marking a, a, a switch in his strategy. Rather than just jumping around from place to place, sharing and preaching the gospel, he now goes to a population center, a political and an economic center like Corinth or like Ephesus, and he stays there for a while. He disciples people and he sends them out from that particular hub, and churches spring up all over, not that he planted, but that other people planted. More on that later. Verse 11, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. <clears throat> Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. Now, that is an interesting job title, isn't it? Itinerant Jewish exorcist. That would make for an interesting plane flight when you ask them what they do for a living, right? Itinerant Jewish exorcist. I didn't even know that was a thing, and yet there was, a, there was an understanding that there was a spiritual realm and spiritual world and that it interacted with the physical one so that sometimes people were tormented by evil and by evil spirits. And so Jewish followers of, of Yahweh saw it as part of their ministry to go and actually deliver people from this evil. Well, they realize that there is power in the name of Jesus, and so they begin to invoke the name of Jesus that has power over these evil spirits, and it didn't go very well for them the next time. Verse 15, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? <clears throat> and the man in whom the evil spirit was and the man in whom was the evil spirit leapt on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Now, I wasn't a fighter by nature. I didn't grow him in the hood. I'm not a brawler. But I do know this about a fight. If when the fight starts, you are fully clothed and not bleeding... And when the fight ends, you are naked, bleeding, and running out of the house naked? It did not go well for you, right? This one guy with this demonic presence overwhelms seven of them so that this fight does not go well. He says, Jesus I know, and Paul I'm aware of, but who are you? You don't actually have the power of the Spirit to be able to be doing this, and it goes really bad for them. And there's a sense of awe and wonder and fear that fills people. So, verse 18. 
Also, many of those who are now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Just so you know, 50,000 pieces of silver, that was probably the Roman drachma, which was equivalent to about a day's wage for the common laborer. So 50,000 days wages means is equivalent to about 135 years of work for any normal laborer. That's an absurd amount of money that they are burning, and yet they found something better and more powerful. Story continues, verse 21. Now after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. So he's going to go back to Corinth, he's going to go back to Athens and Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea, the places that he had planted churches. He's going to gather a collection there, bring it to the people of Jerusalem and then continue on from Jerusalem to launch to Rome so that he can continue his ministry there. He's kind of laying his, his plans in pencil as it were. Uh, Verse 22, after having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. So he's prepping the way a little bit, sending his kind of right-hand man ahead of him to kind of prepare the way. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. You see, the temple of Artemis was in Ephesus. It was a banking center. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. And and they're saying, that is being threatened. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of his sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Don't you love his fearlessness? I mean, he's ready to just go, and even though it's not going to go well for him, and all his friends are like, man, sit this one out, sit this one out. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. If that ever is just like a definition of mob rule, they don't know why they're actually there and all that mad, but that's kind of what happens when people get together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Because if you can't win an argument, at least shout him down, right? And don't let him talk. 
That's kind of what they're doing. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? It was a meteorite shaped evidently like her. Um, Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. So picture this huge riot going on in this exact theater. Actually, you can go there today. It's one of the most well-preserved theaters of the ancient world. That's actually Pastor Derek from just a little over a year ago in the theater in Ephesus. This is where this massive riot was taking place. Imagine people shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians over and over and over again. See, the gospel of Jesus had turned this city upside down and they were on notice. There's so many ways that we could talk about this church, but I just want to highlight the characteristics. I wonder if you saw them. The six of them, of healthy, vibrant, gospel-centered ministry. The first one, the believers here are marked with humility and teachability. And what I mean by that is I'm struck by Apollos and the, the disciples of John, how teachable and humble they were. You see, Apollos was no slouch. He was a well-educated man. He was a, a good preacher in his own right, an orator from the city of Alexandria, which was the intellectual center of one, one of the world intellectual centers of their day. He was Jewish. He was well aware of John the Baptist. He knew about Jesus, but his knowledge was incomplete. And so Priscilla and Aquila pull him aside, and he actually humbly learns. He corrects his understanding. He fills in the gaps, and then he is commended by them as he sends them to, as he sends them to Corinth to go and preach and teach and strengthen the church there. Now we know from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians later on that some of the Corinthians actually preferred Apollos as a teacher and a preacher to even the Apostle Paul. And so he's a remarkably gifted man, and yet he is marked by humility as he learns, and he grows in his understanding. These other 12 disciples, probably who are followers of Apollos, when Paul comes and tells them about the Holy Spirit and Jesus and the fuller work that he had done, they humbly respond and they receive it and they, are, they fill in their gap, fill in the gaps. I think this is so insightful for us today. Nobody likes to know it all. In fact, I don't care where you are and in your following of Jesus, how long you've been following him, there are still so many things that you can learn that you can grow in, that you can understand more deeply. See, I long to see God move and work in our midst. But I think one of the prerequisites of that is that we are humble and that we are teachable. Even in our evangelism, our sharing the gospel with other people, are we more certain than we should be? And I'm not saying that the gospel isn't true. It is, but but when we come across, do we come across as a know-it-all or do we come across with humility 
and teachability. And this is, the, this is the understanding that I have. This is the best of my knowledge. This is how I put things together. If we add and season our speech with a little bit of humility and teachability and allow ourselves to be corrected and our understanding to be refined, it goes a long ways. Apollos was probably a better preacher than you, but he was teachable. He was humble. He learned. Second, Holy Spirit's power is demonstrated clearly in their midst through healing and through deliverance. One of the ways that people rightly recognized the truth of Paul's message was that the Holy Spirit's power was right there confirming it supernaturally. We read in verses 11 and 12, And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a lot of charlatans. There's a lot of followers of Jesus that are kind of swindlers at their, at, at their core. I, I got, a number of years back, I had someone mail me this, like, prayer shawl that had been infused with like divine power that I was supposed to pray under and oh by the way send a donation to their ministry when we read this about handkerchiefs and aprons touching Paul and then healing people the the application is not oh we got to get some of those but rather the spirit was doing something here that was confirming the truth of the gospel that he was proclaiming and one of the ways that the spirit confirms the truth of that is by healing people by restoring people by casting out evil spirits by restoring people to to sound mind and health see healing deliverance the holy spirit's power it it both excites us and if we're honest some of us it terrifies it makes us a little uncomfortable because we read the pages of the, of the New Testament and we see it all over in Jesus' ministry. We see it all over in the book of Acts. And then we look around and we're like, I don't know if I see that happening like it happened then. And so is the problem us or is God doing something different and moving in different ways here? And the answer to that is probably yes. Perhaps a little bit of both. See, this healing is so powerful, this deliverance is so powerful that it's in danger of being hijacked by imitation. The seven sons of Sceva do this, and yet even the counterfeit pales in comparison to the real thing. So what exactly do we make of the healing power of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? Should we expect that that happens today? Or is God done with healing? Is God done with delivering people from demonic forces? See, during Jesus' ministry, his main message was the kingdom of God has come upon you. God's rule and reign has come into your midst. And one of the ways that God confirmed the truth of what Jesus was saying was by showing forth his power through Jesus. By actually bringing the kingdom that he spoke about. And when God's kingdom comes, the broken things are, are put back together. And so we see the reverse of the effects of, of the fall in, in almost every way during Jesus' ministry. The blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak, good news is proclaimed to the poor, the, the lame walk. Those who are being tormented by the demonic presence of evil spirits are, are delivered and set free. And yet if we're honest in Jesus' ministry, not everybody got healed. Not every blind person saw, not every deaf person heard, that there was only some that did. It was a, it was a glimpse, it was a taste, it was an appetizer, as it were, of, of, of the future kingdom that was to come. 
Now here's my best understanding of the New Testament. That power of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate the rule and the reign of God has been transferred to Jesus' followers, his people, when the Holy Spirit comes and and invades and overwhelms our lives. That the power of God that was at work in Jesus' life is actually at work in our lives through the power of the Spirit. That's astounding. So much so that Jesus actually said, it's better that I go so that he will come because he can be with you all the time. And so we actually see this in the book of Acts when the gospel begins to spread out that that the very same things that were happening in Jesus' ministry start happening in the church when they go out and they begin preaching the gospel and, and, and telling people about him. The rule and the reign of God comes, but it doesn't come fully. It's like an appetizer. A glimpse of the future kingdom breaking back into the here and now, but not in a way that's fully satisfying. Is that not our lived experience? Where we experience the power of forgiveness and now communion with God. We get to taste and see some aspects of the future kingdom in the here and now, but never the full meal. It's meant to make us hungry for the full restoration of God that is to come. And so the question then becomes, should we expect that God is going to move and work in these kinds of ways now? Yes. Yes. But Pastor Kyle, why isn't it happening like we see it in the book of Acts? Well, let me just tell you, the book of Acts is in many ways a lot of the highlights. There's a lot of ordinary ministry taking place in between all of these verses that maybe doesn't reach to the level of the highlights. But even today, when we pray for people to be healed, are we just like faking it? Or do we actually expect God to sometimes break back into the here and now and heal. Well, Pastor Kyle, there's lots of ways that God heals. Yeah, there is. He heals us through doctors. Sometimes he heals supernaturally in that particular moment. Sometimes he doesn't heal us until the end in our new resurrected bodies. God has promised healing, but he hasn't promised the timeline of that. And what I want to encourage you with today is that God sometimes does break back into the here and now and heal and deliver and restore And that you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit of God to be ambassadors of that future kingdom. Meaning that you can pray, you can ask God, and sometimes he shows up and he does that stuff through you. Now, it's not like a laser beam or a gun that we just start zapping people. We're not in control of that. Nor is everyone healed or everything restored in the here and now. It's just glimpses and tastes of God's future kingdom and his love breaking back into the here and now. But what I, what I do want to build your faith with is this. God does sometimes do that. And one of the things that the Lord has laid on my heart and I think some of the other elders is that as a church, we need to be growing not just in our love of God's word, but our love of the Holy Spirit and our dependence upon him and our expectation that he's actually going to show up sometimes. And so we're going to pray in faith that God will heal. We're going to pray in faith that God actually will come into the here and now and demonstrate his power as a confirmation of the truth of the message. And that it's both and. We don't throw out the Bible and just seek after these encounters. No, it's because of the Bible that we seek these things. And we see in the city of Ephesus that this was happening over and over again. And my prayer is that it would happen in our our midst. And so one of the things that we're going to do is we're just going to create a little bit more room for that. We're actually going to, even today, we're going to um, invite anybody who wants to be healed of anything. We're going to have a prayer team up here that's going to pray over people. And God might heal you. He might. And he might not. 
And we trust him with those things. We don't manipulate him or control him, but we do trust him and we do ask. And we are aware of supernatural power that exists outside of the material world. Not everything can be explained simply looking at matter and, and brains and all of those things. All of these things have a spiritual dimension to them as well. And as a church, we want to be open to what God might do in that. Now, you probably have a ton of questions. I do too. But this is an area that the Lord has been stirring in me that we just need to be a little bit more open to a spirit moving and working. We need to let God grow our faith because I think sometimes there are those gifts of the future kingdom that he wants to bestow on us now. So we're going to get in the habit of asking a lot more. Third, new believers are prevalent. Humility, teachability, the Holy Spirit's power New believers are prevalent. The greatest miracle of all is not someone being healed of a sickness, but rather someone putting their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is happening all over in the city of Ephesus, manifesting itself in a bunch of different ways, but we see all of these new believers there and multiplying out. When God's Spirit is present and healthy ministry is taking place, people meet Jesus. That's just how it works. The church is engaged in the work of evangelism. They are going to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. They're being equipped, and they're being sent out, and it is effective. Now, in light of that, can I just ask you a question? When was the last time you shared the gospel with someone? I'm not talking just we had a spiritual conversation, or I mentioned that I go to church, but where you actually shared the saving work of Jesus Christ with someone. How long has it been? Guys, it's the best news around. It's, it's the most profound, life-altering, life-shaping news around, and God has entrusted it to you, and he's surrounded you with a whole bunch of people that need to hear it. Another area that I think we need to grow in as a church is we need to be a, a church where, where evangelism is a culture, where we tell people about the hope that we have in Jesus. So how do I do that? Well, I, I found that it's, 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 it's not rocket science. If I can give you just three categories that I, I learned from my friend this week that he kind of passed on and trained our staff in, it, I think it's really helpful. He said, you know what, we need to be having good conversations that lead to God conversations that lead to gospel conversations. One of the problems actually in our culture and in our world is that we stop having good conversations. We only talk about very surfacey kind of things that don't actually have any meaning or value in people's lives. And so we need to get better at just having good conversations, being curious, asking questions about people to people and listening. Often their hopes and dreams are laid bare if we just listen and, and show them the love of like listening and caring about them. It, it could be something as simple as, hey, I noticed you have that tattoo. Does that have any significant meaning in your life? It could be something like, hey, tell me a little bit about your work and why you love it or why you don't like it. And just listen. See, we can grow a lot in our love for people simply by listening and, and keying into people because most people want to talk about themselves. And then, uh, when, when we're good at good conversations, bringing God into the picture, helping people see that spiritual conversation is a normal part of my life, here's a great way to bring God into the conversation. What did you do this weekend? Well, you could tell them, hey, I went to the lake, or I worked on this host project, or I did this, or I did that, or you could also say, and also I went to church, and this is what my pastor was talking about, or this is what we looked at in God's word, and this is, why, this is what hit me. All of a sudden, that good conversation has now got brought into the spiritual realm in a way that's significant to you and them. Now, you can read people, and sometimes they're like, I don't want to talk about this, so stop. 
But, but a lot of people actually are interested in who you are or, or interested in what you actually believe about life. And so there are times that God conversations can lead into gospel conversations where you can share with people the hope that you have in Jesus and how he's met your deepest desire and longing and set you free. And here's the thing, not everybody's going to listen to me because I'm not in their life. But God has placed you there. And so through the Spirit's prompting, might we be a church that gets into a lot of good conversations that lead to God conversations that, Lord willing, lead to gospel conversations so that people might meet Jesus in the Twin Ports. So humility, teachability, Holy Spirit's power, new believers seen. Fourth, there's a willingness to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. The story of the book burning shows us two things, and it's not primarily about book burning. First, there is a culture of public confession of sin and shame that is evident among these people. Second, the gospel of Jesus impacts your approach to personal finances and your pocketbooks. See, these new believers who have been steeped in magic and occultic practices recognize the evil and the rebellion that has existed in their lives and they renounce it. They bring this shameful thing into the light and they get rid of it. We're told that they came and confessed and divulged their practices. Now let me ask you a question. What has to happen for people to be open and honest about some of their most shameful things? What has to happen for there to be a culture of that kind of transparency and confession where people bring their shame and their evil to bear and they say, I did this. I am renouncing it. Most people don't talk openly about shameful, evil, deeply wrong things. But people who have experienced God through the gospel do. Because Jesus actually, through his life, death, and resurrection, tells a better story, a more powerful story over your life. It's given you a more secure identity than what you used to trust in. And when it does, it allows you to bring your evil, your sin, your shame into the light and renounce it. And it produces a willingness in you to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, even if it drastically affects your pocketbook. I'm sure there's many here that could afford 135 years of wages just being burned. Probably not, right? And most of us can't just part with that kind of money. That's an absurd amount of money when totaled up. You see, there probably would have been a temptation to be like, well, I can sell it and donate it to ministry. Or maybe pocket it a little bit. I, I put a lot of money invested in this. Now keep in mind, in, in doing this, no one's forcing this. No one's like making them do it. They're voluntarily doing this as they recognize the evil that has existed. They want to renounce it and bring it into the light. They're convicted and they're provoked by these things. A modern day equivalent might be someone who is steeped in occultic practices or, or Wiccan practices. And some of their stuff might be worth a whole bunch of money. But rather than give it to somebody else and allow them to be ensnared, you would rather destroy it so that it doesn't get its talons in anybody. Or, or I've been told that certain types of pornography can actually be worth quite a bit of money as collector's items. But rather than selling that and profiting off it and allowing someone else to get sucked into that, it's better to just destroy it. That's kind of what's happening here here. Can you imagine how powerful it would be to live among a people where you can be truly open and honest about your sin, about your shame, about your secrets, where you can bring it into the light, renounce it, and allow the healing of Jesus to cover? That's what the gospel does, you guys. It sets you free. 
So as a church, we have lots of places like city groups and DNA groups and friendships where confession of sin can be a normal part of your life, where you bring things into the light, you renounce it and allow the grace of Jesus to heal you. You can do so freely because there's a better story over your life, a new identity that has been fused to what Jesus has done. That even though you bring all of your brokenness and shame, God has already given the verdict of what he thinks of you in his son. This weekend, I found myself working on a kitchen project. I don't know if there's many of you that were affected by all the ice dams that happened this winter. They were horrible. Well, we had one on our kitchen wall that that had a bunch of water leaking in, and this wasn't the first time that it happened. And so... The, the, the people who came in said, yeah, you probably need to open that up. There might be mold behind it. And so we did that. Uh, this week, Liz is pretty strong. She did a little bit of demo. I, I did a little bit more on Friday and Saturday. And let me tell you something about this project. Our kitchen looks a whole lot worse right now. It's torn up. It's a mess. We're wondering, what in the world are we doing? And yet, when we tore it off, we found black mold all in the insulation and on the sheetrock and on the, on the plaster. And here's the thing. I couldn't see that on the outside. But if we had not dealt with that, that would have had a lot of long-term repercussions for ourselves and our family and our health, right? Like, no one wants to live in a place with a bunch of black mold. Sin is kind of like that. Sometimes there's this shiny veneer and you can't tell what's going on beneath the surface, but it is slowly destroying and poisoning you. And you don't tell anybody about it. You don't bring it into the light because often it gets worse before it gets better. Because when we bring it into the light, we realize that that idea that my sin doesn't hurt anybody gets exposed for the lie that it is. That a lot of things impact a whole lot of people. And yet, mold doesn't grow in the light. It grows in secret. It grows in the dark. And what I want you to see about this church is that they had so profoundly been grasped and shaped by the gospel that they freely confessed their sin knowing that in Jesus is forgiveness. They were so captivated by him that they were willing to do whatever it took to renounce the the darkness in their life so that they could walk in the light, even if that meant bringing their shame into the open. Guys, I'm your pastor. I'm not shocked by anything anymore. I know there's some things that many of you have never told another soul. And you think you justify, oh, you know what, I'll take care of it. I can handle it. I won't do that again. And over and over and over it happens because there's mold growing behind the walls. The gospel of Jesus sets you free to bring it into the light. And I'm going to tell you, it gets worse before it gets better, but it does get better because Jesus heals and he brings a comfort that no bottle could ever bring. He brings an identity that no amount of achievement could ever satisfy and he sets you free. So humility, teachability, the Holy Spirit's power, new believers all over, willingness to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. Two more, the gospel of Jesus impacts the economy. The whole story about Demetrius and the silversmiths is it's incredible, isn't it? No one picketed the, the idol makers. They just didn't buy them anymore. Why? Because there was something so much more satisfying and fulfilling than an idol made of silver. 
In Ephesus, the gospel had taken root so much that the silversmiths were running out of business. And the only thing they can do to combat it is to start a mob that doesn't even know what they're doing. See, often as the church, we get this backwards. We show up and we pick at certain places like Planned Parenthood, or we protest sex trafficking, or we speak of the evils of drunkenness, or lament the fallout of no-fault divorce. And, and hear me, all of those things are bad. They're broken. They're evil. We should be against those things. But what if instead we ministered to those with at-risk pregnancies and provided system of support and advocacy for them. What if the church was the safest place to run if you were in trouble and you were pregnant? Because those people would love you and they value life at every stage. What if there wasn't a market for prostitution and pornography because the men and women in our city embraced a better sexual ethic in light of what God has designed? What if instead of men and women running to the Lord uh, rather than running to, to alcohol or to drugs to deal with the pain in their life, they ran to the Lord to find a deeper comfort. What if the church provided marriage support and counseling and pre-marriage counseling to help marriages grow in health and reduce the number of divorces that have all kinds of repercussions? Now, here's the thing. We try to do all of those, and we're growing into some of them. I could tell you story after story of people in this church that have been transformed and healed and forgiven and walked in. But honestly, they're not my stories to share. They're your stories to share. But the work of the gospel was so profound in the city of Ephesus that it began to ask. I can. And I can't wait to find out. Finally, the work of the church of this church multiplied out and had a regional impact far beyond itself. Ephesus became the center of the work that God was doing in the region of Asia Minor or Turkey. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, and in the surround itself sends letters to seven churches, one of them being Ephesus. And in the surrounding areas, he gives them a, a nod of, of commendation and usually a rebuke or a warning to turn from sin. Now, most of the places mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, most of the cities, the Apostle Paul, we have no record of him ever going to. But you know who did? People who met Jesus in Ephesus, probably. At the synagogue or at the lecture hall of Tyrannus, meeting Jesus, being discipled, and then being sent back to your home. One of the stories is the story of the Church of Colossae. One of my favorite characters in the Bible is a guy by the name of Epaphras. He most likely met Jesus in Ephesus, 100 miles west of his hometown of Colossae, probably there on business. Well, he went home, and when he did, he brought the gospel with him, and he started a church in his hometown of Colossae and in the neighboring town of Laodicea. Paul would later write one of the books of the Bible, the letter of Colossians, to this church that he had never been to, but was vibrant and, and, and moving and working because of a guy named Epaphras. Uh, Jesus himself would write a letter to the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3. Paul would write to a believer by the name of Philemon in the city of Colossae, all because a guy that you've probably never heard of brought the gospel with him to his hometown. And the region of Asia Minor is filled with stories like this, not just Ephesus and Colossae, but Philadelphia and Sardis and Hierapolis and Thyatira and Pergamum and Smyrna, all throughout modern Turkey because of the work that started here. 
If I could just be honest with you guys about the calling that God has placed on my life, it's very similar to what we see in the church of Ephesus. My dream, the, 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 the thing that I want to spend my life on is to, to see even just a fraction of what God did in Ephesus here in Duluth and Superior in the Twin Ports. That I would plant my flag here, that we would start a church that not just allows people to come and meet Jesus and be discipled and mature in him and develop leaders, but that we would send people out, communities out, that we would multiply at every level so that the entire region of the Twin Ports and the Northland would actually be different because the gospel changes places, that it would change the economy, that it would change how we relate to our pocketbook, that it would create people that will do whatever they need to do to follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And by the grace of God, that's actually happened in the last 15 years. Not only has Rock Hill been planted and a couple other campuses in Chester Park and Superior, but we've planted three other churches that are still in existence today. We had one in Cloquet and one up in Allborn and one over in Lake Nabagaman, which was a replant. And I say that to give glory to God, to say he is at work and his spirit's power is seen, but we got a lot of work to do. We have a lot of work to do. God has placed us here, and there's no way we're going to fit them all in this room, all the people that need to hear about and know Jesus Christ. And so that means that you need to be built up into maturity and discipled. And, and you might be someone who stays here. You might be someone who goes and starts another church in, a, in another neighborhood like Lakeside or Woodland. Or, or maybe God has, has sent you up to Hermantown or Esco or, or Twig or Two Harbors or lots of different exciting places. And by God's grace, those churches should be marked by humility and teachability. They should be marked by the Holy Spirit's power to heal and to deliver, by new believers consistently coming to know Jesus, because the good news is just that. It is good news. A willingness among the people of God to do whatever it takes to follow Jesus wholeheartedly, including confessing your sin. That it, there would be a tangible impact on our community that, that right now doesn't seem to have a huge impact for gospel purposes. And then it would multiply out from here into all of those different places. Guys, this is what I want to spend my life doing. You may not have the exact same call, but you are part of the same church, and this is what we're about. And so, by the grace of God, we're going to continue laboring toward this, not because it's the, the only way to do things, but it's because what God has stirred and called us to do. So would you join with me in praying that these kinds of things would happen in our midst like they happened in Ephesus? God, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it inspires us, it provokes us, it challenges us, it encourages us. God, I pray for anybody right now who is maybe wrestling with the reality that there's a lot of, there's a lot of things hidden behind the walls that they don't want to talk about. Holy Spirit, would you lead and guide them to confess it? And would you lead them even right now to the person that they should tell? that can walk alongside them, that can pray for them, that can remind them of the good news of the gospel. God, would you help us to have lots of conversations this week that are good, that lead to God conversations, and maybe even once this month, allow us to share the hope that we have of the gospel of Jesus with somebody that we know and love. God, would you transform our city because you transform its people. We know, God, that this vision is far beyond any one of us to do, and so would you do it, Holy Spirit. Lead us, guide us, allow us to experience your power even today. In Jesus' name, amen.